From time to time you hear the phrase Christian humanism, and uh, it's not my favorite phrase, I have to admit, because I think it's a tautology. Uh, and as it's normally used, it implies that, well, there's a kind of Christianity that's not humanistic, you know, that's, that's anti-human. But there's also some Christianity that's, that can actually qualify as humanistic and so good. And uh, this is in spite of the fact that ours is the religion that worships a human being who also is God and claims that human beings can be divinized. So I'm not sure what there is about Christianity that is not humanistic. Paradoxically, it tends to be the great humanist achievements of the church that give rise to this critique. And the church's appeal in the power vacuum that was created by the collapse of the western half of the Roman Empire allowed the Christian ideal to flourish in Western Europe uh, in ways that brought about a great increase of wealth and political influence in the temporal realm. And similar developments gave rise to the great advances in the arts and sciences and education and so on. And of course, these sorts of gifts, which they are, also come with certain temptations. And so where there is power and wealth, there will be a temptation to clericalism in the church. And clericalism is another interesting word. It's kind of a, a paradox in and of itself. Uh, the etymology of the word is the Greek word kleros, which means a lot or a portion. And it comes from the understanding in the Old Testament that the priests in the Old Testament, who were from the tribe of Levi, uh, could not own property. Uh, their only inheritance was God himself. And so the other tribes had to provide for the Levites. The Levites uh, had to rely on the benefices of the other Israelites. This carries over into the Christian church in that clerics are those for whom there is no inheritance except God. And so to be clerical is a, a refutation in terms. To seek power and wealth through ordination would be a... a a problem, obviously, and that's what I'm getting at, is that there is such a thing as clericalism, but it's a refutation of what the cleric is supposed to be, one who receives from the hand of God directly and not through political machinations. And the problem with clericalism, I don't need to detail it a lot, I'm sure you know, it tempts the wrong certain type of person to seek ordination to the priesthood and consecration as a bishop. And it has a, a ripple effect. It causes the rest of us to be skeptical and suspicious, uh, even to, say, today's gospel. Who wants to be a sheep? Right? And we especially won't like thinking of ourselves as sheep if we don't trust our shepherds. And we won't trust our shepherds if we suspect that they are in it for themselves and not for us. Now, in our Lord's terms, these sorts of persons are hired men. And these sorts of persons will leave us in the lurch when the wolf comes. Now, this is, a, I think, an overly suspicious view, but it's one that has its foundations in a certain reality of life in the church in the modern world. So it's important to remember when we talk about the pastors, pastor is the Latin word for shepherd, pastors of the church, when we talk in this way, we have to remember that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And in English, it's, it's possible to hear this as if we are contrasting him with bad shepherds. There are good shepherds, there are bad shepherds. Jesus is one of the good ones. And that's true, of course. 
The Greek phrase is slightly different. Jesus says, Ego eimi ho poimen ho kalos. I am the kalos shepherd. And this adjective, kalos, can mean good, but it also can mean beautiful, fitting, excellent, suitable. So excellent in nature and characteristics, well adapted to the ends of whatever it is that the thing is. So the kalos shepherd, in some senses, is not merely one shepherd among many who happens to be good, where others are not so good. He is preeminently the shepherd. He is the fitting one. It's fitting that he should be the shepherd. If anybody's going to be shepherd, it should be Jesus Christ. Why is that? That's because he's not only human, like the rest of the pastors in the church, but he's divine. It is because of his divinity that he is the good and true shepherd, the real shepherd. And more than that, our Lord cannot be accused of running a power play on us sheep, being in it for himself. He proves this by laying down his life, by emptying himself of his divine prerogatives and becoming lower than all. But it is also because he is the divine Logos, the Word of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, that he can make this astonishing claim in the Gospel today. I have power to lay down my life and power to take it up again. Our Lord's origin is important here, and it is because he is the one who is sent by the Father that the Church is not a democracy. You know, sometimes we think we can get around this clericalism problem if we spread out the power more, but it's in conceiving of the Church's work as power that's the problem in the first place. You know, it's, it's actually of a different order that comes from God. Uh, our Church is dependent on Christ's divinity, and in the scriptures, in the liturgy, and hopefully in a homily, we hear the voice of the one who has the authority to speak. Christ speaks with authority because he comes from the Father. He is the Father's word. So Jesus Christ is the true and fitting shepherd because he is God. And we are, by contrast, dependent creatures. It is also true, however, that our Lord has a divine nature which he comes to share with us. He doesn't keep it for himself. In our baptisms, we now have a divine origin analogous to the divine origin of the Word of God. And it is for this reason that we do not, or should not at least, fear death. When the wolf comes to snatch us away at our deaths, we find, we will find, the same divine logos, the life of the world, indwelling not only in Jesus' soul, but in ours also. We will be united to Christ in this deep way. And as our Lord laid down his life in order to take it up again, we will find our lives given back to us after our death. And this is what St. John means in the second reading today. He urges us to reflect on the love the Father has bestowed on us in letting us be called children of God, analogous to the Son of God. We are brothers and sisters of the one true Son of God. Indeed, that is what we are. We shall be like Christ, freed from death, freed from sorrow, in, intimately united with our true good, who is our God and creator and the giver of every good gift to humanity. Now that sounds like real humanism. And if this is Christian humanism, 
Why would we settle for anything else?